0: To Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with technology leaders and some of the most innovative minds in the industry to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they foresee for the future. No topic is off limits, so sit back, relax, and maybe take notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. On this episode of Future of Tech, Rajesh, who serves as the VP of the Data Platforms Group and the CTO of the Network Platforms Group for Intel, described the entire process of building a new sort of architecture. He also explains why the disaggregation of hardware and software is one of the most important outcomes of NFV because of the flexibility it offers, and why CIOs everywhere should be focused on embracing that principle of disaggregation. A company's architecture has always been of tantamount importance to the company's success. On this episode, Rajesh discusses the evolution of modern networks and their architecture, the power of converged network architecture, and why hybrid clouds and openness are so important. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and Technology Center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs Technology page on LinkedIn.
1: I'd like to uh, welcome you, uh, Rajesh, for a new uh, episode of uh, Future of Tech, and um, we are going to discuss various issues, I, I, I saw that there are so many topics that you're dealing with related to cloud and edge and 5G and networks and software, so we will try to touch as many as possible and, and to leave our you know, audiences uh, interested, and uh,
2: let's start, okay? Yeah, actually, so thank you, Avishay. it's uh, an absolute pleasure being here um, to chat with you uh, on this uh, Tech Topic series. Um, You know, uh, I've actually had the pleasure of uh, working closely with Amdocs and collaborating with Amdocs for a number of years. And uh, when you invited me, I was actually looking forward to this discussion. So uh, it's my pleasure again. Uh, Thanks for having me and uh, look forward to a very good discussion. Perfect. So
1: maybe we'll start, you know, from the beginning. How did you find yourself uh, dealing with technology?
2: Oh, uh, that's a great question, actually. Uh, you know, honestly, um, growing up in uh, India, especially rural India, um, this was also in largely, uh, it was a function of uh, the opportunities that were available. And so this is, I you know, going back to late 80s, um, early 90s, um, so I uh, you know, grew up in India, went to school in India, and um, uh, you know, at the time, uh, there were largely you know, only two or three career options, right? So you uh, would uh, go into science and engineering domain, or you would uh, go into medical sciences and become a doctor. Actually, in reality, those were the two primary options that um, you know, most uh, kids had. And for me, actually, I was always an engineering. You know, um, I was always an engineer at heart, I suppose. Yeah. I would and uh, play around with the radios. And, um, you know, if something were to go wrong with any uh, equipment at home, I would be the first to grab a screwdriver and open it up and see what's going on. And so I guess you can, you can say that I'm an engineering at heart. And so when the time came, I said, um, you know, electronics and communications engineering was, um, you know, a hot area. And I just decided to actually pursue that, um, and I'm actually glad. I'm very glad I did yeah. because it's been a very journey over the last uh, 25 years or so. Great, great. And how did you find yourself uh, working for Intel? Ah, so another good question. Actually, I came to US in uh, 1995, uh, and I started working for a communication software company called Trillium Digital Systems. And uh, Trillium was in the in the domain of um, uh, writing. Uh, standards and protocols. And at the time, actually, you'll remember back in late 90s, ATM technology. Of course. That was uh, very hot. And uh, Trillium, the company that I used to work for at the time, was a pioneer. And we would actually write standards. So I've actually contributed to ATM standards at the time. And Really? Uh, you know, we developed software. Which one, the 100 meg or the t-
1: 25 meg?
2: <laughs> yeah, it was actually, uh, you know, all the way to uh, 10. Ten hundred at the time, right? Like in. Oh, good. Good. Okay. And uh, Lots of stuff around the LAN emulation, LAN emulation or ATM and those kind of technologies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, so uh, Intel was looking to make a, a bigger investment in the networking domain and uh, Intel acquired Trillium in July of 2000. And so that's how I came to become a part of Intel and uh, been here for about 20 years now. I've done a few different things at Intel, uh, including product management, strategic planning. Uh, but I realized after going doing a few roles that my heart was really in engineering. And so um, when we were actually looking to uh, grow our networking business, I uh, started playing the role of an architect and um, really looking at the definition of next generation platforms. And uh, I've been actually in the networking business here at Intel over the last uh, 13, 14 years. Good.
1: And today you're part of the uh, CTO network platform group and uh, you are the uh, VP of data platform uh, within this group, am I right?
2: That's correct, yeah. So um, the networking business here at Intel is a part of our data platforms group. So this is uh, uh, everything in the data center, uh, including cloud enterprise and uh, telco operators business. And uh, so um, I am a part of uh, the data platforms group that's led by Naveen Shenoy. And then within that, uh, there is a networking business that's focused on um, network solutions, across the data center in enterprise, in cloud, and in telco business, and also uh, the whole telco domain, where we look at uh, wireless infrastructure, 5G, uh, edge computing, and uh, other things. So um, I'm a part of the networking business within DPG, and uh, I'm the CTO for uh, the networking business. I work for Dan Rodriguez, who actually leads the networking business now at Intel. Perfect,
1: good. So we've done all the introductory that is needed, and and we can jump in. I'm wondering, you know, what's Intel has to do with all this uh, cloud revolution and all these uh, software-defined networks and, uh, and stuff? You know, give me some, uh, some background about why Intel is playing there and, and what's your role.
2: Yeah, so that's an awesome question, actually. Um, I'm really glad you started there and asked me that question. When I actually uh, started um, in the networking business, Uh, This was actually back in um, uh, 2006, 2007 uh, here at Intel. And uh, at the time, actually, uh, Intel had an investment in network processors. Uh, We used to build our IXP family of network processors. And what we were realizing, actually, just talking to customers and uh, operators, is that fundamentally, the way we were actually approaching the network infrastructure was untenable longer term. So if you opened up, uh, an application at the time like uh, uh, re- a wireless radio network controller, for example, there would be multiple architectures inside. So there would be um, you know, a general purpose uh, CPU for doing application processing. There would be uh, a different architecture for doing control plane. There would be network process for doing data plane and IP packet processing. And then there'll be some DSPs or homegrown ASICs for doing Uh, signal processing, Uh like in base station. And fundamentally, when you think about it, like, you know, when you have multiple architectures to deal with, um, it it is very suboptimal because it takes a long time to optimize four different software paradigms, you know, four different optimization points and tools and so on to deal with, right? And then you had to do the integration. So it was taking a really long time to build solutions to market. And so we said, hey, you know, what would we do different here? And uh, the big goal that we took for ourselves is how can we make uh, standard architecture such as uh, Intel um, architecture uh, best in class to run the four main workloads in networking, application, control plane, packet processing or data plane, and signal processing. And that's the mission that we uh, embarked on. Uh, This is where we built things like DPDK, Data Plane Development Kit, which um, really helped with efficient packet processing. Can you give me just...
1: In, in in a very short way, what's the difference in characteristics between the four different behaviors? So people that are not that familiar with uh, how things are working will understand the, uh, the complexity of the solution that you uh, uh, took upon.
2: Yeah. So, you know, if you think about it, applications, these are things like OSS, BSS, right? Like, uh, you know, billing applications or, um, you know... Um, anything that you can run on a general purpose platform. Okay. Control plane is signaling protocols. So from the time you pick up the phone and you dial somebody, uh, there is a set of exchanges that happen, um, you know, that allows you to, uh, you know, get to a point where you can really talk to the other party or for that matter, actually do a web transaction. Right. And so the control plane is something that you and I don't see. This just happens magically in the network where there's a lot of like session information, or signaling information that goes in back, back and forth that allows you to get to a point where you can do um, you know the user data um, you know, transmission. Very time dependent, very real time in nature. That's right, yes. And then um, from a workload characteristic standpoint, it is very similar to um, applications. But where it, it, it's really different is uh, when you start thinking about data plane, right? So uh, if, you, if you see actually how things have evolved, over the last uh, decade or so, we've gone from, I think you were asking me earlier, 100 megabits per second to a gigabits per second to 10 gigabits per second. And now we are talking about hundreds of gigabits per second. And in fact, uh, my team has started working on terabits per second. So uh, when you have to deal with such speeds and um, you know traffic that is um, uh, highly sensitive to latency, such as uh, voice, such as video traffic, where you cannot tolerate any jitter, and quality of service is extremely important. Um, it becomes very important that you, you know, process that data uh, that's coming on the network, um, what you call as IP packets, uh, efficiently. Uh, and so, so that's what I refer to as a data plane because this is the user data. And then the last one is the signal processing. So, um, you know, our phones, right, they talk to something called as base stations. These are the Christmas tree-like structures that you see on the side of a freeway if you're driving, right? And um, uh, a lot of that is basically uh, you know radio transmission uh, analog and then that has to be converted to the digital domain and uh, there's a lot of like uh, dsp like algorithms that run there and um, so like i was saying earlier all of these four were running on four different architectures and what we have done over the last um, you know 14 15 years is to really make bring them all on a single architecture and consolidate the workloads because guess what when you have one architecture that you can run all these workloads on, you get a tremendous amount of efficiency, and you can actually bring solutions faster to market. Good. And that journey that we got on around 2012-13, the operators came to us and said, hey, you know, we like this vision, and what can Intel do to give us, you know, deliver some of the same magic that you guys have done in cloud and enterprise where you virtualized the workloads on a standard server how can we actually deliver the same for the network infrastructure or the network applications? And that's basically what led to NFV, Network Function Virtualization, as uh, and, and SDN, as you've seen. And uh, it's been a really fruitful journey because now, you know, we see, like, as we get into the 5G deployments and edge computing, um, you know, NFV has become, uh, you know, fairly entrenched, and we are seeing the benefit of uh, what NFV has delivered. Okay. Interesting. Interesting.
1: And... Once you reach that point, in in what way um, does it change our industry? In what way does... uh, So you're saying now things can go faster. You're saying now things can go smoother. What are the aspects from from a telco perspective or from the industry perspective once once this is done, once you were able to uh, uh, level set all technologies under one architecture?
2: Yeah, so um, if you see... Um, you know, what NFV or uh, and SDN, right? Network Function Virtualization and Software Defined Networking have accomplished. The biggest accomplishment is really the disaggregation of hardware and software. And why I uh, say uh, it's the biggest accomplishment is because if you look at like traditionally how networking equipment was built, right? It was actually built in the form of an appliance where the hardware and software were tightly integrated. So the first thing that NFV was able has uh, delivered is the disaggregation of hardware and software, because what that now does is um, customers have actually our customers or people who build network application network equipment now have tremendous flexibility. First of all, they have choice of hardware, so they can actually uh, go build network applications on standard server hardware like uh, uh, from Dell or HP, um, and then. Uh, because now the software is disaggregated, now you can actually open up the ecosystem and it's no longer a few players that are playing and building network applications, um, such as in wireless or uh, network security and so on. Now, because you have, um, you know, um, the software is not dependent on hardware, now you can innovate um, much faster and you have a large ecosystem. So if you look at... um, the wireless software ecosystem. You'll see that uh, there's been a number of new entrants in that area. Uh, so you've actually seen um, companies such as uh, FM Networks, MetaSwitch, uh, Mavenir. Um, there's so many newcomers that are innovating and uh, building, uh, you know, providing new options um, in terms of how the wireless networks uh, can be deployed with a lot of new innovation. Great. Now. Inject into
1: this also open source, how, how does it play into uh, this ecosystem? How does it help,
2: if at all? Yeah, so um, <laughs> uh, again, like, uh, it's a very important question, and this is something that, um, you know, we at Intel have been very passionate about. Um, open source has been a real cornerstone. Uh, open source has been how uh, we've, um, it's played a very key role in uh, our NFP and SDN journey, uh, in terms of how we have transformed the network infrastructure. Um, because, um, you know, uh, with open source, um, there is always a community that's working, um, that is actually uh, working with each other collaboratively to drive innovations faster. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, people can come and contribute different aspects uh, to uh, an open source project. and so. Um, you know, from an Intel perspective, um, going back to I was actually making a mention of DPDK, Data Plane Development Kit. Um, we've uh, actually always led with open source. We've uh, actually made a ton of contributions. In fact, not many people know that um, Intel perhaps is as big or larger software company as it is today, as it is a silicon company. And in fact, um, Intel's been always uh, one of the top two contributors to Linux kernel. Uh, and so. Today, if you look at it from a network viewpoint and uh, the networking landscape, um, you know we are a part of uh, Linux Foundation networking. We are a part of ORAN Alliance. We were actually a part of XCNFV uh, movement and uh, contributed to a lot of XCNFV uh, standards. Um, and so, yeah, so we we do think that open source is very important because it uh, is a is a sort of like a commu- community innovation uh, that we can drive with an open source approach. But at the same time, I will tell you that um, our approach has been not just open source, but it is very important that we put a good amount of focus on the commercial ecosystem as well. So open source is important. It gives us the agility. It it actually helps us drive innovation. But at the end of the day, and you guys know this very well, I wish I right, Um, when you look at telco operators, many operators around the globe don't have the ability to just take the open source project and deploy it. What they're looking for is a commercially hardened software um, that, uh, of course, can benefit from open source and the faster innovation cycle. But at the end of the day, they want a hardened software that they can deploy, that is supported, um, where they can get updates, they can get patches, uh, and so on. So the Intel approach has been, we put equal amount of focus on both open source, which is a very important uh, way how we innovate in in the marketplace. But uh, for us, actually, it's also equally important that we drive a viable, commercial, hardened, supported software ecosystem. And so we have a program called Network Builders where we have uh, more than 300, and you guys are a part of this as well, which actually helps us drive uh, a commercially ready uh, software model.
1: I think you've touched a very important uh, topic, and I'd like maybe to ask you uh, an additional question around the uh, the open source. So. Rightfully so, you said that it opened up the ecosystem. It allowed many uh, players to enter. The fact that uh, this, plus the the change of making now the network software-driven, allows us now to uh, to have or to experience a variety of new technologies and partners and and uh, detach from the combination of software and how they are going together. However, it also injects now a big threat we all know of coming from the cyber attacks and, and cyber-related uh, technology. And, uh, and I, w- I was wondering in what way um, you were thinking in your new architecture, in, in the new design of making sure that the solutions that are now being uh, you know adopted are uh, secured in, in the right way, and how do we make sure that you know we are not getting into a uh, a big uh, havoc uh, using those open source
2: solutions? Yeah, you know, security is paramount, right? And um, I think the threats have um, really increased um, because, you know, um, going from, we used to actually have closed proprietary solutions. And um, to some extent, you would argue that that limited the attack surface because it was actually fundamentally a closed and proprietary system, right? But as you go into um, the world of, uh, NFV, SDN, and now cloud-native. Uh, of course, these are actually increasingly being deployed on standard server hardware. And then, um, of course, there's so much software innovation that um, uh, you know on on standard server infrastructure that, by definition, you know uh, it's important to address the security implications, particularly you know how we actually um, you know deal with the larger attack surface that uh, this results in. Now, our approach uh, to this has been um, uh, a sort of like a combination of hardware and software because um, you know, it, it's extremely important that um, uh, we look at this from a system perspective and make sure that there are no holes uh, either in the hardware or in the software. And then the approach that we have taken is um, uh, we want to secure everything with a hardware root of trust. So from the time the platform comes up, uh, BIOS, uh, operating system, hypervisors, uh, everything is signed, and uh, we make sure that the architecture fundamentally ensures that only stuff that is supposed to be running on the platform actually runs on the platform. And so you can only do that with like a hardware root of trust, and everything that runs on the platform is signed and allowed to run on the platform. That's sort of like been our approach, uh, and this. Hardware root of trust runs all the way from BIOS, operating system, hypervisors, through the applications, right? So that's um, one thing. Now, um, of course, what we do is we are also actually making sure that as the hardware building block uh, providers, we are making sure that uh, we are uh, bringing in new technologies um, with a goal to make sure that everything that is running on the platform, any data that's being used um, at any given point, that is secure. Anything that's actually going on the wire is actually secured with network security with the VPN technologies. So we've actually put in a lot of effort to um, provide for acceleration on our platforms for uh, workloads such as IPsec and uh, SSL TLS. And then uh, we also actually make sure that anything that is stored on the platform. So storage security is very important as well. So, you know, uh, like really end-to-end security if you think about it, right? So security for workloads that are running on the platform any data that's stored on the platform and any data that goes from outside of the platform onto the network, everything is secured uh, so that, uh, you know, we can actually, uh, in this world that is becoming, um, you know, uh, cloud scale where, uh, you know, increasingly, you know, we are living in an environment where we are supporting hybrid multi-cloud architectures and deployment models, to actually make sure that we don't leave anything to chance and everything is secured from an end-to-end perspective.
1: Okay. Um, let's talk a bit about, uh, about the cloud you've mentioned. Can, can you uh, elaborate a bit about the cloud uh, in the sense of you supporting cloud native technologies? Uh, what are the uh, essence behind it and, and what things do you see over there as, as key for the success?
2: So, um, you know, I, I was actually telling you about a journey um, from over 2013 to about, you know, uh, up until now We've been focused on, um, you know, uh, bringing the best virtualization techniques uh, for network applications, uh, particularly with the, you know, as the 5G ramps and stuff like that, right? And we've made a lot of good progress. If you sort of like look at, um, you know, in the enterprise world with, um, you know, SD-WAN kind of uh, technologies, if you look at the cloud, right, like with uh, virtual security applications, um, even um, you know application delivery controllers, load balancers, virtual security functions. Uh, you look at like five G, both in the RAN, like with the virtual uh, RAN uh, kind of deployments, or uh, in the wireless core, right? Like um, with uh, the evolved packet core and IMS, and increasingly now with the five G user plane functions. Um, I think there is a ton of progress, and we see um, that. Um, uh, a lot of network infrastructure and a lot of infrastructure in, g- in general has been virtualized and uh, is getting the benefits, the TCO benefits and also the, some of the agility benefits. Now, uh, as we look into the next few years, uh, what we are realizing is that um, there's a few things that we can learn from what the cloud guys have done, uh, the hyperscalers have done. In particular... There are a few things that we, were, we had expected to achieve with NFV that we are a little bit behind on. So things like automation, for example. Um, and so um, uh, there is an opportunity here to learn from what the hyperscalers have done and see how we can actually uh, you know, uh, adopt some of those practices and uh, best known methods. Uh, so we can actually get better cloud scale. There are three areas to answer your question uh, directly. There are three areas or, or three key business imperatives for me that the cloud native drives. First is uh, further disaggregation. So you can basically run your applications anywhere without uh, necessarily uh, looking for uh, you know, any particular hardware component or hardware acceleration. So uh, you really want that disaggregation and hardware abstraction. So you can build your application and run it anywhere in the infrastructure. Second is automation and uh, orchestration. And this is where Amdocs uh, plays a very key role. You guys have done a phenomenal job in the NFV movement, and uh, I think you're poised uh, for good success as we look at the next phase with cloud native. Um, What you really want is um, the infrastructure to run uh, like a self-driven car, like an autonomous car, right? So you want it to be uh, automated and uh, the application lifecycle to be like an automated lifecycle managed. And then the third one, which is uh, very important, is the composable applications. And so what I mean by that is... um, uh, you know, the, the, the new age cloud developer is looking for a very high level of abstraction and they want that easy button so they can actually write applications and so uh, in, a, in an easier fashion and deploy um, applications quickly. And so when you think about that, um, you know, uh, and how things have evolved in the cloud infrastructure, the composable applications really translate to a microservices and a container-based approach. And I'm really excited because uh, I've been actually looking into this uh, over the last um, couple of years and uh, looking at the progress that the cloud guys are making. And I really think of uh, you know, this uh, 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 approach of using microservices and containers, even in the network applications. And we are actually beginning to see some early deployments in, uh, in as uh, you know, the 5G rollout begins to happen with cloud-native approaches. And this actually has me super excited. So really from a business imperative for cloud-native perspective, it's the disaggregated infrastructure, it's the automation and orchestration, automated lifecycle management, and then the composable applications with the microservices and container-based approach.
1: Great. Now you've touched uh, 5G. I would like to touch it a bit more. So um, wh- what's uh, what's your uh, overall perspective about this phenomena? Is it something that is going to change the industry? Is it just uh, yet another technology Uh, what's your perspective when it comes to 5G? And how do you tie it into the, obviously, into the whole picture that we just discussed so far?
2: Yeah, you know, actually, if you bring up 5G, um, you know, you'll find me sort of like, almost like a kid in a candy store, right? So this is something that I've been very passionate about. And uh, I really look at 5G as a a game changer of sorts, Um, you know, whichever way you look at it, right? I think, first of all, uh, I think the fact that uh, 5G is a pretty significant improvement from a speeds and feeds perspective, right? It's 10 to 100x more bandwidth. It is 10 times lower latency. And a combination of those two things alone actually uh, gives you, um, you know, uh, the ability to use this technology for a number of new applications, um, things that were uh, not possible before, right? So we know that just the loss of physics um, will not, uh, you know, um, when you actually have to go to a backend cloud, uh, it's like tens of milliseconds of latency to, um, you, know, uh, you know, any transaction that goes to the cloud, right? Sometimes even uh, more than 100 milliseconds. And when you look at like many of the new applications that we're thinking about, whether in um, you know, things like uh, autonomous driving a car, whether you're looking at uh, industrial automation, robotics, um, whether you're looking at um, You know, in the medical sector with uh, some of the remote surgery kind of applications, um, uh, the possibilities are immense, right? Video analytics and video surveillance is another one. Or Many of these applications, they require um, low latency, um, you know, uh, below 20 milliseconds, sometimes even below 10 milliseconds. And uh, so when you think about that, um, uh, 5G uh, now uh, gives you a technology to work with for uh, achieving that low latency and uh, you know, high bandwidth, the high throughput needs of many of these applications. Um, so, so I'm actually super excited. I think uh, you'll see actually, you know, from an Intel perspective, over the last uh, 18 months or so, we have done more than 100 field trials uh, all around the globe with many operators. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, I think it was uh, like in 2018, at the Winter Olympics, we actually did the first demo of uh, 5G from an end-to-end perspective with uh, many cool applications. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, I'm actually, uh, uh, a little bit bummed that, uh, we are not able to, um, you know, right about now the summer Olympics would have started and we would have actually seen many applications of 5g in, uh, at the summer Olympics in Tokyo. Uh, but hopefully, um, we'll uh, get to see some of this actually next year. Um, when the summer Olympics actually take place. Uh, but, uh, no, to answer your question, actually, I'm super excited with uh, what 5g has to offer and, uh. Uh, to me, actually, uh, the real power of five G um, is uh, also actually how we can build new applications and services at the edge. So I almost whenever the topic of five G comes in uh, comes about, I actually always uh, make a mention of edge services because that's where the real opportunity is to make money for all of us. Um, and then uh, the you know the environment for many of these edge applications or edge locations is very power and thermally constrained, and so. Uh, that also actually drives us um, more towards a cloud-native um, application uh, development and uh, deployment model, and so yeah. So I think it's uh, it's very ripe for new innovation, um, and I'm super excited uh, with 5G, with edge, and uh, using cloud-native as a way to really sort of like you know um, bring 5G to fruition and uh, real deployments.
1: So let me let let me ask you uh, a tough question. So <laughs> it appears that. Uh, uh, 5G is the uh, panacea for everything. Now we found the maybe side of COVID. It, it resolves all, all the industry issues. So uh, this is it. We're done. Nothing to do more. Just make sure that 5G is there.
2: No. So, you know, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, this whole COVID situation has been um, really unfortunate, right? I think we've actually all seen the the issues that came as a result of, um, you know, uh, COVID. Um, of course, it's um, been having, uh, I, I think we are all uh, learning and and learning to live with the reality of COVID, right? I think uh, many of us, uh, in fact, um, uh, more than 90% of us are actually working from home. And um, it has actually, um, <laughs> I think you would agree that uh, not a single day goes by when, you know, you, you're not sort of like disconnected from the VPN or having connectivity issues because, uh, you know, the bandwidth is fully consumed or, uh, you know, you are uh, not he- able to hear this one person because they are on a slow network and, you know, there's like... A,
1: no, we, d- uh, we, we, we don't experience it at all. For us, everything is sleek and we have no <laughs> issues. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, you know, um, uh, uh, I think, um, you know, th- there are, uh, you know, 5G doesn't solve all the problems, but... Um, i think it, it does actually provide um, you, you know like i said uh, with bandwidth with latency with this uh, notion of network slicing where you can really create sort of like uh, you know end to end slices of network which is a new paradigm right because now yep. just think about it right like if you want to actually deliver your maybe pause for a second and explain
1: it uh, what does it mean so uh, our uh, audience will understand what is network slicing
2: Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So network slicing is really the ability to uh, almost create like a virtual slice of the network uh, end-to-end. So let's say um, uh, to give you an example, if uh, I'm in an industrial deployment in a car factory somewhere and I have a, a, a robot um, that is actually talking to some edge application and perhaps even some something running in uh, One of their, another facility, um, like for example, maybe their support team is located at a different location and they want to be able to access this robot. Now, uh, you want actually uh, a certain quality of service, a certain latency characteristics, certain bandwidth. Uh, So, in other words, actually, some amount of resources in the infrastructure and in the network uh, that are reserved for this application, industrial robotics. And so what network slicing allows you to do is it has actually um, the mechanisms to reserve uh, the key resources in the infrastructure so you can actually get the quality of service that you need from an end-to-end perspective for uh, for an application like uh, robotics. Or like it can be any application, right? So it's that ability to really carve out a slice of uh, the resources in the infrastructure, in the network um, that would give you that quality of experience that that application desires. That's basically what network slicing is. Perfect. So I'm, go- I'm, I'm coming back to my,
1: my previous question. So 5G brings a lot of good things into the world. It allows you to do many things. Network slicing is one of them and the edge is tightly coupled and the latency and the bandwidth. So what are we missing? What if if you were in the shoes of um, a CIO or CTO that needs now to look into this, what what are what they should look? What are the things they should focus on? Where are the places to put their money? Where are the places to uh, to search? Where would you invest the next you know uh, budget?
2: Yeah, so uh, I think you know I think this is a nice uh, we are circling back to where we started right, like, and we said that uh, increasingly cloud native uh, movement and the cloud scale is becoming uh, very important and so if i am a cio right um, what i'm actually looking to do is to transform my infrastructure whether i'm in enterprise or whether i'm in uh, in the telco world and um, looking to sort of like you know uh, embrace um, the principles of cloud native around more disaggregation uh, how do i actually achieve more automation and uh, how do I actually um, uh, really make it easy for uh, new applications and services to be deployed from an end-to-end perspective? And um, of course, that uh, you know uh, means uh, a, you know fundamentally different way of like you know how we you know uh, transform um, the infrastructure and how we actually build, deploy, uh, uh, you know, create, deploy, and manage applications. Uh, you know, in the uh, like an on-premise enterprise, for example. But then how do we also actually provide for elasticity so you can extend your infrastructure into a hybrid cloud deployment? Uh, because I think, uh, you know, uh, I think every CIO that you talk to, they will tell you that um, there are many unknowns, right? I mean, and and their needs are not constant. I think it, uh, you know, varies significantly depending on different times of the year, Um uh, you know, uh, Even within a given day, sometimes you're bringing in new applications, you're trying to flex your capacity and stuff like that. And so the hybrid cloud where you can actually extend uh, your infrastructure into a hyperscaler cloud, I think that's becoming important. And then you take it to the whole new level now with um, multi-cloud, right? Because it's quite possible that, uh, you know, I want to run analytics and I find like one cloud, uh, service provider really providing some innovative uh, platforms and app, you know, microservices that I can use um, at you know in that uh, hyperscaler uh, infrastructure. And then uh, I might actually like for my billing and for some other uh, microservices, I might actually just uh, want to run them in uh, a place where I can get like um, basically a best TCO, right? So what I want to be able to do is have complete flexibility in terms of uh, where and how I run my applications. And then the flexibility to move things around, um, depending on, um, you know, uh, how my needs change, right, with complete flexibility. And so if I'm CIO, um, you know, I would be really excited with the developments that are happening from a cloud native perspective, because it's not just about transforming your own infrastructure, but it also actually a set of technologies, uh, tools, methodologies that allow you the flexibility to go into a hybrid cloud or a multi-cloud deployment model.
1: I, I believe I believe that um, I'm I'm fully in agreement with you. Let's uh, briefly touch some some more technology. You know, after all, it's the future of tech. And I would like you to uh, explain uh, maybe uh, the basics around the uh, kata containers and clear containers. What 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 do we need them? Uh, what what are they for? And uh, what's what's Intel play?
2: Yeah. So. Um... Kata Containers is an open source community. It's uh, working to build a secure container runtime with uh, lightweight virtual machines that feel and perform like containers, but provide stronger workload isolation uh, using the hardware virtualization technology as a second layer of defense. Uh, So as you guys know, um, we've actually added a lot of uh, virtualization hooks um, that actually provides for... um, workload isolation. Um, So what you, as an example, um, when you actually have um, multiple virtual machines or even containers uh, running on top of uh, the same infrastructure, um, you want to actually make sure that um, one container uh, or or application in that container uh, does not have access to the memory space and uh, um, of the other container or virtual machine. Because I think if uh, you don't provide for sufficient isolation, it's a big security nightmare. Because uh-huh. then you we have uh, you know a spam application come in and actually really create a havoc um, in uh, uh, in the infrastructure and do all kinds of things. And so it becomes this the isolation at every level, at isolation from a compute standpoint, isolation from a memory memory footprint, isolation from um, you know, for the I.O. devices that are actually connected on the platform. Uh, all of these are very important um, things to be looked at. And so this is exactly what uh, the Kata Containers is, um, uh, as a community is uh, looking to drive uh, to build a secure container runtime.
1: Great. And um, if we're, you know, already speaking about containers and orchestration, let's, let's uh, briefly mention also Kubernetes. So what's Intel's play into accelerating um, you know maybe performance and maybe some other aspects when it comes to Kubernetes
2: yeah, so um, you know um, before I talk about Intel's play, right? I think um, uh, just in general, actually, uh, what I've actually heard from uh, all the players in the industry, uh, everyone likes the notion of cloud scale, and we all actually want that agility. we want to be able to um you know drive more abstraction so you can actually write your applications and not have to worry about the underlying platform um, but while that is true um people are also worried in the industry that hey you know how do i actually benefit from the generation over generation investments that are coming in the hardware because one thing that you don't want to have happen is um, uh you know uh, when you get a next generation new platform um you know as as Intel, for example, uh, we actually add we continue to innovate uh, the networking capabilities in the standard server, and we are bringing in new instructions, new kinds of accelerators, um, you know better latency characteristics, um, you know better quality of service, and you want to be able to for the applications to make use of all these capabilities so one thing that we are trying to do is, uh, while abstraction is important because um, you know that gives you the cloud scale and the developers don't want to worry about what capabilities are in the underlying platform, um, in this scheme of things, the orchestration layer uh, Kubernetes becomes a very important um, uh, mechanism to expose the platform goodness. Uh, and so, think about it when you are actually deploying a new network service, or you are deploying a new application, um, you want to be able to schedule that workload such that you can get the best performance or you have the right capabilities. Like, for example, if you're deploying a cloud gaming workload, you want to be able to deploy it on an infrastructure where you have uh, some GPU acceleration. Uh, If you're deploying a virtual RAM for 5G, uh, you want to be able to deploy it uh, in the part of the cloud that has uh, the the right CPU instruction set and uh, accelerators that give you acceleration for uh, forward error correction and uh, you know the polar coding and those kind of mechanisms, and so um, the way to accomplish that Kubernetes actually serves as a really good mechanism to do that. And so what we've been doing from an Intel perspective is working with the Kubernetes community to bring all the platform capabilities. Uh, through the orchestration layers. So, when you create, deploy, and manage an application from an end-to-end perspective, you uh, can do that uh, with a full knowledge of uh, where the right capabilities exist in the infrastructure, and so you are matching the workload with the underlying capability. And so, um, we've been actually driving this uh, set of capabilities called Enhanced Platform Awareness, EPA, in Kubernetes, and these are capabilities such as node feature discovery, as an example. Uh, CPU Manager for Kubernetes, which provides a mechanism for CPU pinning uh, and uh, provides isolation of containerized workloads. Huge page support, um, which, uh, you know, from Kubernetes 1.8 uh, onwards, it enables a discovery, scheduling, allocation of huge pages. It's a fundamental, it gives you much better performance. Uh, SRIOV for networking. So these are all the capabilities that um, we want to actually make sure that we can work with the Kubernetes community and uh, improve. Um, or Kubernetes, um, uh, for Kubernetes, sorry, for container networking, container storage. Um, and um, um, there's a good way to uh, really bring the platform goodness to bear and uh, to be able to make use of it when you, uh, uh, you know, create and, and deploy new applications and services in the infrastructure.
1: Okay. Now I would like to uh, go back to the edge. And we are, we, uh, you made. Uh, several use cases that show how important the edge is in, in, uh, in the future architecture of, of the network and uh, the compute environment, also the IT as a whole. Um, now, we are all speaking about bringing uh, more compute power to the edge as part of the edge becoming, um, let's say, the next place we want to, uh, to extend the network, if you wish, or, or the cloud, it depends uh, how you look at it. What are we missing in terms of hardware uh, to make the edge as powerful as we need? Or are we missing something in terms of, uh, of hardware or devices when it comes to the edge?
2: Yeah, great question again. Actually, um, uh, and uh, <laughs> when you, Talk about edge, there are multiple edges, right? So, um, you, you know, um, there is on-premise edge, um, this, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's many services uh, that are being deployed, for example, in the factory floor um, on-premise. There is network edge, like uh, in the deep edge, like with, um, you know, uh, uh, the radio access networks for 5G becoming virtualized. It's a great platform on which you can actually do additional AI and analytics and other kind of services. And then, uh, of course, on the operator side of things, we are seeing central office edge, right? So central offices are being transformed, and they're becoming almost like a cloud, like a mini cloud. And so that's another place where you can actually deploy some of the edge services. And of course, um, you can always actually extend edge into the cloud. So uh, edge, uh, I just wanted to clarify that edge can mean any one of these locations. And really, if you think about it, uh, what's changing is, Traditionally, we have always thought about, um, you know, a a client application talking to the cloud. So it was a two-tier model. Um, When you think about the edge, it's really the distributed connected compute. So it's actually becoming multi-tiered hierarchy, right? So you can have a client that's talking to, uh, or a client application that's talking to any one of the edge locations that I talked about. And then that um, uh, might have components that might be talking to a hyperscaler cloud infrastructure and things running in the cloud also. So it's really becoming, um, like I think we used the term hybrid cloud before, uh, there are going to be many clouds, right? Some of these uh, smaller clouds are going to be located uh, as close as possible to the uh, edge, uh, as close as possible to the application and where the data is. And so, um, uh, you know, uh, so that's why edge becomes very interesting. Now to your question about uh, how does the infrastructure look and uh, where are we in this edge journey? You know, I think we have already, like with, uh, you know, the foundation that you have set with NFV uh, and the initial progress on cloud native uh, with the Kubernetes and, um, you know, uh, know, using Kubernetes for edge deployments. um, I think the solutions are already uh, sufficiently mature that we can actually deploy, you know, many of the edge solutions today. Now, of course, uh, there is actually going to be uh, capabilities both in the hardware, but also actually in the orchestration domain that would need significant improvement as we, um, you know, uh, go uh, as we uh, deploy more edge services over time. Um, I think on the hardware side of things, one of the places where, uh, you know, as the CTO of networking business here at Intel, I've been actually looking at is the notion of quality of service and how do we actually really drive quality of service in every subsystem in the platform, uh, including in the CPU. And so uh, we've been actually working on this technology called uh, Intel Resource Director technology that uh, provides for cache and um, memory quality of service. Because one thing that happens actually when you deploy um, multiple um, uh, VMs or containers, um, there is always a noisy neighbor effect. If one of these containers or uh, VMs is um, uh, using a lot of resources, then you will actually see a degradation in uh, other virtual machines or container performance. And we don't want that to have happened. And so we've been actually um, driving this notion of um, resource director technology, so quality of service for uh, cache and memory, and then we're going to extend this uh, in future into other subsystems that uh, really allow you to uh, eliminate this or at least reduce significantly the noisy neighbor effects as a result of uh, many containers and virtual machines running on the same infrastructure. So, um, so, you know, quality of service, um, how do we improve the networking capabilities for containers, uh, improving the Kubernetes uh, capabilities. So these are actually on top of my mind. Uh, And then on the orchestration side, of course, like, uh, you know, um, we, we, uh, today, um, you know, Kubernetes does a really good job of, uh, you know, managing uh, all the nodes in a cluster. But we, um, like we talked about earlier, uh, in a hybrid cloud, now you have to deal with multiple clusters um, and uh, you know, across ge- you know, geographical boundaries. And then uh, in a multi-cloud deployment model, you're going to actually have a multi-cluster, multi-edge, multi-cloud kind of orchestration. And so I think um, the orchestration domain um, is going to see a pretty significant innovation as well, right? Um, I think there are like lots of uh, extensions to Kubernetes but it doesn't stop there, right? I think service orchestration on top of uh, resource orchestration is also extremely important. And so we're going to actually see uh, a lot of innovation in, um, in, in the domain of uh, orchestration and automation as well.
1: Great, great. Um, so we are kind of uh, about to end the, the show, and I would like to ask you maybe a final question. If I'm a CTO, And I've just heard all those uh, stuff that uh, we we talked about in the last hour or so. And it seems to me very interesting. Yet there are so many domains we touched, we touched containers and we touched orchestration and uh, software and, and how applications are going to be shaped and this and that. What should be my focus areas, let's say two or three focus areas in your eyes that will allow me to start embracing those uh, brave new worlds and, and move faster into uh, making my organization a better organization?
2: Yeah, so no, I, I think that's a that's, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, very good question, right? And, um, uh, you know, of course, change doesn't happen uh, in a day. Um, I think, you know, uh, it's not a light switch that we can turn on and off and we can sort of like just go, uh, hey, you know, from here on, is going to be a completely different, uh, you know, um, so cloud native is not a switch that you can turn on. I think it's a gradual transition. Um, Now, the way I think about it is, uh, it's also actually fundamentally a change in culture. So when you think about like, you know, uh, I think we've all been in software for a long time. You know, We used to talk about things like agile and uh, software releases and, uh, you know, that kind of paradigm, right? Now, in the cloud world, I think uh, people will tell you that, uh, you know, a cloud developer thinks of, uh, you know, more of a CICD, like continuous integration, continuous development. There is no concept of releases. They are actually continuously sort of like, you know, bringing in new capabilities and deploying it. So, to me, actually, first of all, um, uh, as CIOs and CTOs, um, I think it's a mental shift and we are sort of like fundamentally looking at a new kind of culture in software development. Uh, And I think it's, uh, you know, something that, um, uh, you know, you have to sort of like really make a mind shift change. And once you do that, then of course, like, uh, you know, I think um, the move towards uh, going from what used to be monolithic applications to more of a microservices and containers as a way to deliver that uh, methodology. Uh, I think this is going to be the, the, the way we actually deploy applications over the next decade you know, at least like for the foreseeable future. And so um, uh, I think along with that, uh, you know, uh, you have to think about more automation, um, potentially even using uh, some of the AI uh, paradigm. Uh, I didn't get a chance to talk about this, but we are thinking about, hey, you know, can we actually make use of uh, some of the telemetry data and, uh, you know, trained machine learning models to drive closed loop and use closed loop automation. So I think that's going to be a key thing. Um, of course, cloud scalability with uh, like you know uh, the elastic deployments around hybrid and uh, potentially like in a few years, more pre uh, cloud deployment models. Uh, I talked about uh, disaggregation and uh, you know uh, more abstraction um, as the key and then um, uh, of course um, you know resiliency and uh, you know fault tolerance through software mechanisms so um, a lot of things to think about, but uh, I think um, we are poised, we are at actually at a, you know, a good transition point. I think uh, you know, the, the, there's been a huge progress over the last few years, uh, and I think uh, it's a good time to really sort of like invite the, the, the best-known methods and what you've learned from uh, you know, the hyperscalers and uh, the, how the cloud world has evolved. And uh, as we look at um, the future of uh, network infrastructure, uh, I look at sort of like bringing some of these techniques, some of these uh, things that have actually worked well, uh, and marrying it up with like, you know, what uh, we have seen in the cloud. And uh, the vision that I am actually driving towards is how do we actually make uh, the infrastructure more scalable, programmable, and intelligent? Um, that's the mantra that I would like to actually uh, drive. And hopefully, uh, if you're doing this again in a few years, uh, I would love to believe that uh, the network has become more programmable, the infrastructure is more scalable, and uh, we are in a more intelligent application era.
1: Great, I think it's a, it's a perfect summary for a very, very interesting and a pleasant discussion. Uh, Rajesh, I want to thank you. It was a great pleasure having you with us, and uh,
2: we'll talk soon again. Yeah, Avishai, thank you for the opportunity. Um, uh, like I said at the beginning of this call, uh, It's been a great partnership. I've actually loved working with Amdocs um, over the years uh, in the open source communities, for example. We've worked together in ONAP. We've done a lot of uh, great things together in terms of uh, transforming the network infrastructure. And uh, I'm super excited as to what this partnership could result in as we look at Cloud Native in the next phase of uh, infrastructure transformation. So looking forward to um, uh, more collaboration. and uh, look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn.